Hi, welcome to Disability Inc. My name is Jane Hafey, and I'm really excited to talk today with Madison Zalapani, who is an artist, an activist, and is the coordinator of access and community programs at the Whitney Museum of American Art. Welcome, Madison. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we are super excited. Me too. So you and I have talked a little before, um, but even just in my introduction, I think our listeners can tell you wear a lot of different hats. Um, but let's start with your artist's life. Um, talk a little bit about, tell us about your life as an artist and your evolution as an artist. Mm -hmm. So I <coughs> have been an artist ever since I can remember. I went to school for it in Baltimore, the Maryland Institute College of Art. Um, I was interested in teaching as well, so I was in like the community arts program there and would do a lot of sort of like community arts based teaching and projects, but um, I was primarily a painter. And um, I think my practice probably would have been painting forever and ever if I didn't start getting into disability activism from just living my life in a really inaccessible city, mainly when I moved to Chicago. And then my practice sort of became interdisciplinary because I felt that I wanted to respond to the world in more than just one medium, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so I did uh, a performance slash video piece where I did a sort of my own version of the Capitol crawl on my commute to work. So I would crawl up the inaccessible train platform from my home and then uh, do this, uh, do the same thing to the inaccessible train platform that was like right outside of my workplace and then went back um, also crawling up the stairs and then I took the video footage and I put it online in an interactive website where people could watch the video they could sort of learn about what physical inaccessibility was because that was what I was mainly focusing on and then um, an area where they could write into the CTA and sort of also collectively put their voices together and say hey, we want something like this to change. CTA being the Ch Chicago Transit Authority? Yes, yeah, okay. the equivalent of the MTA. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So can people find that work online? Um, I believe I took the website down, but the actual videos are still on YouTube. Oh, excellent. So Yeah, I've seen well. them, but I'm wondering if our oh. listeners can see them. Yes. Um, so you're, you started as a painter, which is a very particular kind of practice and medium. And, mm -hmm. and so you went to this really different kind of, um, of set of art tools, really. Mm -hmm. um, what are you doing now? What's, what's, yeah. what's happening? Well, I still consider myself a painter, and so there's sort of two answers to that. Um, in the terms of painting, I've been thinking a lot about an artist's responsibility to make the work accessible. And a lot of people think, well, painting, that's pretty accessible. There's no sound content. You don't have to climb into it, you know? Like, um, But I was thinking about what is it to be visually accessible to people um, who may be blind or partially sighted? And, you know, there's verbal descriptions, which is great and... Um, it's definitely an access point into the work. There's um, tactile mapping that, or creating a replica of the work, which is great, but what if the work itself could be experienced both visually and physically? What would that look like as a painting, and how would that be different than a sculpture? How would that be different than any other sort of interactive piece? And so I've been playing around a lot with... Um, 
and it's very, very new, but basically these elements that are visually pleasing and interesting to me as a painter and playing with mm. the medium of paint that I'm really interested in, but how thinking about what would also be really interesting touch and how those two concepts will get at the same end point. Does that sort of make sense? That, that someone seeing it and someone touching it could have, could a, have similar a similar experience. Exactly. Um, it's and a cool I, art show. I would love to go. <laughs> I don't know if it's totally possible. I think I could play with it forever. <laughs> and, you know, everyone, no matter what you do, no matter what your intentions for your work are, once it's out there in the world and people are interpreting it, no two people are going to interpret it the same way. So, you And it's know, out of your hands at that point? It's totally out of your hands. So you just have to make the work that you need to make and then move on to the next thing. Um, I'm also, in terms of thinking about my art practice in line with some sort of my practice as an activist or a person who's just really into access, um, <laughs> a friend of mine, a longtime friend, we've been friends since high school, Alex Zach, and I are collaborating on a project that is um, called People for an Accessible Mars, and the mm. so Pam. Mm -hmm. um, and that's Mars the planet. Mars the planet. <laughs> and we're thinking a lot about the sort of colonization of Mars and how people are sort of being vetted over years to be like these perfect new colonial pioneers going on the frontier of Mars. And someday we're going to repopulate it. And thinking about that as maybe a form of like new eugenics, mm -hmm. creating these sort of like perfect specimens that are eventually going to populate Mars, but also thinking about like who is truly, if we were able to populate Mars, if we were really to go there, who's going to end up sort of being allowed that expedition and who's going to sort of be left behind if we destroy this planet. You know, there's a lot of sort of big picture. Huge existential kind of way of thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so we are thinking about sort of a satire project where we're a uh, um, fake non-for-profit or a very real non-for-profit, depending on who you ask. <laughs> um, and we're going to do a series of workshops where we're data collecting um, for this mission about what would make your mission to Mars accessible. Um, so sort of putting forth the idea of, well, instead of retrofitting accessibility, what if we, disability culture was embedded in right away and our voices were heard and everything was sort of tailored to be inclusive, all the while knowing we're never going to be included in this mission to Mars. So it's sort of a, a play on this idea of going to Mars, but also sort of a critique of this idea of retrofitting accessibility here on Earth. Trying to make up for right. so much lost time here on Earth. Well, just thinking about so much of the access features not being sort of this beautifully designed. Mm, intentional. Yeah, intentional, human-centric. You know, rather being like, well, here's a ramp in the back of the building. We didn't think of it before. That is like a piece of plywood over two steps. You can get in. You know, I'm talking... About physical access, but there's yes, a lot of, yeah. you know, forms of that retrofitting, even if it's not a physical barrier. Well, super cool, and I hope we can all look that up. Um, 
Down the road. <laughs> down the road. Down yeah. the road. So you bring up the different kinds of access. That must really relate to your work here at the museum. And by the way, um, thanks for having us here at the museum. We're sitting in a very cool, groovy, glass-walled room <laughs> at the Whitney. Um, thinking about your Mars project really brings up for me, the question of all the different kinds of access, because you said you're talking about physical mm -hmm. access, but that there's lots of other kinds of access to be thinking about and on your own mind in your in your activism, but also in your work here at the museum. So tell us a little bit more about that. Totally. So we think about access pretty broadly in terms of um, anything that has sort of been a barrier towards people entering the museum or feeling like they have ownership over their sort of cultural resources here because it is a space for everybody. Um, and, you know, so that's financial barriers. You know, we are an institution that charges money. Um, social barriers. And then physical barriers. Can people actually get into the building? Um, you know, our exhibitions at a place where everyone can experience the same things. And if not, because either the artist made the work, you know, 50 plus years ago and access wasn't on their mind, what else can we do to make sure everyone has a way to experience the work that's on view? Um, and so we do that in a variety of ways, mostly through programming, but also through access accommodations and um, assistive technologies and things like that. Um, I can go into more detail. Yeah, what kinds of um, assistive yeah. te technologies are you using that make art accessible to lots of different of us out there in the world? Totally. Um, so things that are hidden, things that should be seamless feeling, um, that are integrated in the design of the building, things like cane detectable stanchions, things like induction loops that are built into the microphones at the um, ticket desk or the member's desk or in the theater or in some of the galleries where there's like sound content, things that you can just go in and experience. Um, other things can be requested. Um, all of our video content that isn't captioned um, for whatever reason has transcripts or sound descriptions that can be found in our multimedia player. If there's an installation that is physically inaccessible, there'll be sort of like a 360 immersive experience that you can either also find on the multimedia player. We'll have iPads also available if you want something a little bit bigger, or you can find that online. So even if you aren't physically able to make it into the museum, you can sort of get a sense of what's on view here. And then other things we do is actually programs um, that we run. We run a suite of access programs. Uh, we have verbal description and touch tours. We have um, tours in American Sign Language. We have programs for kids who are on the autism spectrum. And then we have a suite of community programming and senior programming, which is sort of this relationship that we build outside of the museum with community centers and senior centers. And there's a sort of beautiful um, resource sharing where we'll come and we'll do art making there, or they'll come into the museum to do an artist workshop here. Um, we'll do bigger programs that we partner with The Door, which is an amazing organization, and they'll have their summer showcase here, and it's just this amazing performance. So, um, And The Door does a lot of work with teens. Is that the teen audience of these artists, that, these young artists that you're talking about? Yes, so um, The Door, it works with LGBTQ youth. Um, they've also performed at like our teen events. 
um, and they have been a resource for our teens that aren't from the door but have come to our other teen programming. Mm. Um, so there's a so sort of connector this, there. Yeah, so there's a sort of really beautiful relationship that we have with our community partners. Not to only shout out the door, but you know. Right, lots of good community <laughs> lots partners. Of good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and then senior programs, which sort of is this bridge between a lot of our community programming and our access programs, because a lot of people who are seniors sort of acquire disabilities, and so we'll have things like assistive listening devices on all of our tours, or, you know, maybe we'll have a verbal description, because a lot of people acquire um, visual impairments as they age, things like that. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting a million things. I'm sure. I mean, in your daily work, <laughs> you're, you're thinking about lots of different ways to be truly inclusive. And, and you're making me think about the idea of a museum as Mars as a stand-in for Mars, right? If you were making a new museum, who gets to come to this museum? Right? How do we make it accessible and how do we make sure that, that we as a museum, if we were the museum people... Not missing, like, all the richness of a very diverse community. Totally. And all the things that happen to think about access from the inception of the actual exhibit to the programs that we plan to the way that we advertise those programs. What access language are we using? How are we reaching out to people? When we do community programming that also uh, will include sort of um, people who fall under the umbrella of disability, you know, we've done the Braille Challenge, uh, we'll do... Um, What's the Braille Challenge? That was um, a really we didn't we didn't participate. We tabled at the Braille Challenge in ah. Queens, um, and these uh, youth will sort of do all these different um, challenges to sort of like tone, like show off their skills of what they've learned for reading Braille. Um, cool. Yeah. Um, and we also work with a lot of artists with disabilities, so it's also thinking, you know, not about the front of house audience side, but also the artists that we work with who we're choosing to showcase and have programs with and things like that. And even just collaborating with artists with disabilities has really sort of shaped the way we run our programs, you know, um, the way we advertise our access language the, from start to finish. So thinking, you talked about, part of language is making me think about this, but, and I think in part you mean what are the, the terms that people will feel respected, included by, um, but also thinking about taking language in other directions, thinking about when you talk about social barriers and other kinds of barriers. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about the other barriers, like what, mm -hmm. what kinds, um, you talked about financial barriers, accessibility mm -hmm. barriers, what are the social barriers that you think about in your role? Yes, that's a great question. I mean, just to pivot back slightly. Yeah, please. With them, um, to be clear, language that we use on the mm, website, yeah. it, it's more to, um, we want to make sure that there's explicit language on our website, on all of our programming, not just about um, that standard of, like, if you have questions about access email. Here, we want to list out what we have, like, what you will experience when you walk into the door. So all of our access programming has that. Not some special hidden web page <laughs> that you have to click to and find. Right. And then also to say, and you know what, if you want to request something that's not listed here, check out our page. This is what we offer. And then people... Cool. And yeah. we've actually seen, um, you know, 
before we started doing that um, on every single sort of both access community public program, you know, we see a lot of people with disabilities at our disability specific events. Mm. Just full every time, but they weren't coming to our other programming as frequently. And as soon as we changed the language, we would just suddenly be like, do you guys do CART? And even though that was always on our website, just having it on that specific page for the program, people were like, yeah, let me ask about that. Mm. And suddenly a lot more people with disabilities were coming to um, some of our more public program-facing events that weren't disability-specific, but they knew we were thinking about access. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then talking um, about... You know, you asked a question about social barriers. Sorry, I like no, no, pivoted. no, no. Thank you because I asked a two-part question, and that is, um, I think that's a really important point to make. You know, in thinking mm -hmm. about the proactiveness well, and the front and centerness of of the language, that it's not and not only specialized. You also have specialized, and we'll kind of mm -hmm. come back to that later. I think mm -hmm. um, specialized kind of mm -hmm. uh, pages mm -hmm. or information. But. Right, but go ahead. letting them, not only are we thinking about removing barriers, but we're actively inviting people in, mm -hmm. which I think is something that is also really important, because if you've been sort of ignored or even marginalized by an institution, not specifically the Whitney or any other institution, but institutions as yeah. a whole, you know, you might not know that... Um, right, if you're, you're thinking wanted. about a place, do you say, let me go find out if I can get in, or if I'm here, mm -hmm. it's really clear up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for bringing <laughs> us back to that point. So, and then you wanted to go back to this question of social barriers? I mean, we can go wherever the wind takes go us. Go for it. Um, social barriers. I would argue, you know, when I say financial barriers, physical barriers, I would argue that most of the barriers are social. You could say that physical barriers stem from social barriers because... Mm -hmm. Social spaces, the architecture is created from these social biases, right? So if we're not creating spaces where we can all come together, we're not going to get that input from the yeah. people who are being left out, right? Um, same with financial barriers. Um, all of our programming is free, <laughs> so <laughs> I forgot to address that. Um, but also just the attitudes towards people with disabilities. I think a lot of people, you know, mean well, but they don't necessarily, disability isn't widely talked about. It's still stigmatized a lot. Um, and so people sort of were like, well, I don't have the tools, I don't have the language, so I'm just not going to, like, I'm going to feel too awkward to talk to that person. Or, you know, I'm just going to, like not address that because I because I don't know what I'm not 100% to ready to and I don't want to offend somebody or you know I don't I don't know that I'm comfortable with it or whatever have you mm. and so that's really I mean that's where the social barriers often stem from mm -hmm. um, and I think the more we can get into these spaces the more we can come together the more that will be that sort of mitigated so Thinking then about your activism, I mean, clearly you're somebody listening to you whose work um, professionally, I mean, most of us who might think of ourselves as activists in any kind of way, don't get paid for that part of our job title, right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even calling myself that, but, but I think um, that's not the part typically you get paid for. But in your professional work, you've really found a calling that relates to your personal passions and your activism kind of feelings. But... Um, but talk a little bit about, 
you know, your activist hat when you're outside of work. Mm-hmm. What, um, what, what's driving you? What are you working on? I, and some of that's coming through your art, clearly, or maybe all of it is coming through your art. Um, but when you think of yourself as, you know, quote unquote, an activist, mm-hmm. um, tell us a little bit about what that means to you. So a lot of times I feel like it's hard to separate from my job or my art because so much of my time is spent doing those two things. And so when I go and I do a professional development, whether it's been sort of through the caveat of my job, but disability related, that still works towards the things that I am hoping to achieve. Um, When I... For example, you know, I spoke at a Whitney event for J20 where we talked about our values and I was like one of the only people amongst all these other sort of activists. I mean, I didn't stay for the whole thing. It was a very long event. Mm -hmm. But but talking about disability specifically, you know, I think a lot of these sort of meetings that you go to or these events that you go to they want, they're talking about intersectionality, they're talking about diversity, and um, they often leave out disability. And so I find myself, mm. whether it's in my professional role here, or going to conferences, or creating meetups for people with disabilities, or going to studio visits of artists with disabilities, or artists in general, to always sort of be vocal about the disability perspective. Um, we're also, I'm starting a podcast with my cool. um, boyfriend. Trade podcast. <laughs> um, well, so this is a me. joint venture? Yes. Um, that's all disability related. Um, so we're talking about, you know, issues from social economic issues all the way to things like dating mm-hmm. and, you know, um, sex in the disability community. So I think a lot of, you know, activism is showing up, speaking out, and in ways that people want to listen to you. Mm. Um, everybody has their own sort of ways of being heard, and um, I think that... Can you talk about that tension between wanting to say what you think is important and finding the way to say it that will be heard? Mm. That's a really that's a really hard question because it really varies from situation to situation. I feel like it depends on people's knowledge about disability, right? And their buy-in. So for some reason, a lot of times I find disability sort of a hard sell um not because not to me but to like the person that you're talking to right um for some reason people will be like oh yeah gender is a construct oh yeah race is a construct but then when it comes to disability they're like you know that's a medical impairment Mm. and we're like no we're talking about the social construct of disability and that just becomes sort of like a less understood, less talked about, although it is getting, I think, more commonly talked about and included. I want to sort of highlight the... Mm, Progress, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think... 
so I think the conversation ends up sort of becoming tailored less to your particular interests and to where that person is at and sort of what you're hoping to achieve mm. within that conversation. So if you're talking to somebody who already like really gets it, you know, like it depends what your goals are and sort of like that's an easier conversation to have. If you're talking to somebody... Um, you're not starting at point zero there. Right, but if you are starting at point zero, I feel like being heard is often just taking the self out as much as you can, the ego, and just sort of kind of trying to figure out where they are and what they're responding to, which is really difficult at times, mm. especially if people are um, also not trying to meet you somewhere. Mm. I don't know if this is a very abstract answer. No, but I, I, I mean, I hear you. I think, I mean, part of what you're saying is around, like, activism, one-on-one, know your audience, right? I mean, and, um, but that that's, there's nothing one-on-one about that in a way, right? I mean, it's complicated, and mm -hmm. it's meaning being flexible, and it's, like, standing up for what you know to be true mm -hmm. um, and figuring out how you balance your fervor um, with pragmatism of getting the next thing done, right? I mean, what, what's the next thing on the list we need to get done if, if we have to go one thing at a time or only two things at a time, right? I don't know. Is that too abstract as a no, understanding? That's, yeah. No, that's totally right. I mean, like, I think it's really easy to be like, I want all the good things now and I'm tired of waiting and I'm so frustrated and I take it so personally because it impacts your everyday life right. and sometimes you are exhausted. You're exhausted of talking to people, you're exhausted of having these teachable moments. Of right. Sort of Why is like, it always on you? You know, like you'll get home <laughs> and even just like, you'll be like, okay, I'm going to unwind and go on my Facebook and then you just, all of a sudden somebody wants to like fight on your newsfeed and you're like, you know what, I'm tired. I don't want to, you know, um, so I think, I don't know where I was going with that, but. Um, well, that, I mean, that, that's, that's another interesting point about mm -hmm. activism, right, is, is mm -hmm. some of it, this isn't, I'm just picking up a different thread, I think, mm -hmm. maybe that around the idea of self-care too, yeah, like sure. you can't teach people who don't have a lot of buy-in into the sure. importance of disability rights and how that is better for all people mm -hmm. um, because we would all benefit from inclusion, true mm -hmm. inclusion. Um, you could do that 24-7 except that you're human, right? And so sure. you get tired. Um, so you have, to, you have to figure out like what battles to pick on what days, exactly. right? And how you align yourselves with different people and... and support um, the movement um, in its million particles, like what particles you're going to be part of at what time. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and you still have a lot of activism years ahead of you, right? You're going to see a, hopefully a lot of change. Um, hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, of course. I mean, uh, we, all, we all hope. Um, and, you know, you're making me think about something else that you said earlier around something at the museum around um, about programming specifically around access, right? Where mm -hmm. it's very designed 
for access mm -hmm. and you get people with disabilities to come to those and mm -hmm. then you as an you as a person and and the Whitney as an institution is working on having also people feel people who have disabilities feel as welcome mm -hmm. to every program here as they do to the access programs right um, and I'm thinking about something um, that I've talked about with you before that relates to that around now we no I said we wouldn't go um, start at your at your birth, but thinking <laughs> about um, your own upbringing and, and childhood and thinking about your work now, this idea mm -hmm. of when you need disability-focused kind of space, mm -hmm. uh, socially, maybe most, or physically, or institutionally, whatever those things could mean, mm -hmm. and when inclusion is really important and having the option for inclusion, but the option for... Um, just to be yourself in a disability-focused kind of setting. Does that yeah, make sense? Like, no, that's exactly right. It's um, The word is choice, right? Yeah. I think, you know, you sometimes people who are able-bodied take it for granted that they have all these options available to them. They want to go to this, great. They want to go to that, great. Um, but sometimes when you have a disability you want to make sure that that space, that program, that whatever, is for you, right? And so having these disability-specific spaces are really important, right? They, you get to interact with your disabled peers, you know that the supports are going to be there available to you, and that you're not going to be uncomfortable about, like, you know, I walk with crutches, I take up a lot of space, I make a lot of noise, and sometimes when I'm in a, you know, a quiet sort of program and I'm like I really want to use the bathroom but I also feel like this is a really stuffy place and I'm gonna make a lot of noise <laughs> when I'm at a disability specific event I'm like yeah I'm gonna get up and use the bathroom and nobody's going to look at me no one's gonna be like you don't have to explain yourself or <laughs> you know um but I also want the option of if I use my wheelchair one day and I want to go see a movie that I have that wheelchair seating, that I have that accessible seating, that I'm able to go do that because I want the choice of being able to go do both. Um, I also, you know, you, you mentioned my childhood. I know something we talked about was the fact that, you know, growing up in the 90s, you know, I was an ADA baby. I don't know a world where there isn't an ADA, but there's a lot of things were still really new. And so um, there was a lot of pressure for me to sort of normalize, be in the mainstream, you know, be in this like non-disabled world and adapt. And We won that right. We won that right and we're going to do it and <laughs> it's going to be great. Um, which is which is fine, which is great. I really, you know, I had a great education. I had a great childhood. But I wish that I didn't have to see, grow up thinking my disability was something that I was forever overcoming because eventually, you know, you realize you've already lost that battle. You're already, you're disabled. There's no, this idea of overcoming it is a fallacy because I'm just me and this is my normal and this is, you know, it doesn't feel like something that I need to overcome. But something I need to overcome is the fact that I can't get my wheelchair into the bathroom stall, you know, um, which is not... Which is more the institutional has to overcome, right? Exactly. Um, but it's put on the personal, the person, mm. right? 
the burden was put on to you to figure out. And I just wish that I hadn't, you know, this is hindsight speaking, um, but you know, I wish I had the opportunity to have just been like destigmatized in terms of my disability of like, it's okay that I have my disability and I'm in this mainstream class. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to work should work hard, but I shouldn't have to work hard because I have a disability. Um, and that I should value being, knowing other disabled children. There's mm. sort of the stigma, sort of, nobody tells you don't socialize with people with disabilities, but there's a sort of um, mental thing that you put up a wall and you're like, well, having a disability is bad, but I'm okay, so I'm, I must not be that disabled, and so there's a sort of, you know, psychological thing happens where you're like, if I associate with other people with disabilities, people are going to know I'm disabled, or I don't quite know how to explain it. Yeah, I feel like that's clear. Yeah, um, and it's sort of projecting your own insecurities onto their disability, onto their bodies, so you don't have to look at your own. And that's kind of being taught as like a, a self-hate almost. Mm. And I don't think that was anybody in my life's intentions. I certainly don't think, you know, that's anything my parents or my teachers or, you know, any of my sort of role models growing up would have intended or wanted. Um, but I think that is something that is the undercurrent of saying, you know, you can only assimilate, you can only be like us rather than acknowledging that there is a disability culture, that we do have, you know, important its own value. And, yeah, and you know, it contributes, yeah, you know. Contribute, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, that's a long-winded answer. But. No, I mean, it's a very, it's a very meaty topic, this idea of, um, of thinking about the choice, mm -hmm. like you said, and this idea of not having, thinking about kids, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that you could pick any age, but if we think about kids who are mm -hmm. just growing up and internalizing so much, right, about their own sense of who they are and totally. and who, uh, who they think other people think they are, mm -hmm. um, how, you know, when you were born, it was, there was a lot of hard-won kind of new rights, but brand new, right? And so you were in an interesting age to... to couldn't help but be a guinea pig for some of that in a lot of ways, completely, right? Completely, completely. It was, you know, I think there's such a changing culture and I'm so happy about it. But, you know, a lot of it was trial and error and people were figuring things out and people are continuing to figure things out. You know, best practices, even within my professional life, are always changing things that were best practices four months ago might not be what people feel are best practices yeah. now. And so I think that's reflective of the disability community sort of being more present and speaking up and sort of being like, hey, actually, you've always told me this, but I don't actually feel that way. Mm. So let's talk about that. <laughs> so, it, I mean, you said earlier in, in this talk that you were at some point like a focusing on the positive, right, that there are positives. Isn't that, and I guess that is... Mm -hmm. That seems to be here, listening to your to your voice there. Like that's that's the positive part. That's the exciting part, I guess. Right? Is that you are 
you are in a zeitgeist now where there's a lot to do, mm-hmm. but you're kind of living through some important change. Feels like it. Even though we can't even see the horizon, maybe? Yes. (laughs) Okay. We'll take it. Yeah. We'll take it. Um, So thinking about, um, you know, as an activist and as an artist, social justice, right? Social justice, if we limit it, we could talk it for hours, right, about that in lots of directions. Um, If you have any other thoughts about what that means to you as an artist. (laughs) Well, <laughs> let me open up a can okay. of worms. Uh, could you maybe narrow the question slightly? Um, yeah, that would probably help. The just thinking about that intersection of um, of working toward a more socially just place, mm-hmm. and that's one way to think about it. You know, it could just be a healthier place because it would be healthier for people who are disabled and have a disability and people who do not have a disability. It would all be healthier if we had mm-hmm. um, greater inclusion. But I, would, I, I was just thinking about the question of um, sort of what's next in social justice for you um, from an art perspective. From an art perspective. Um, outside of the projects that we talked about, I guess, I think yeah, might, I mean, maybe we've, we've talked a lot about it. Well, no, I mean, I, I think when you were talking about sort of, I think if I'm interpreting you correctly, just sort of this, um, what does it mean to be intersectional and mm. what, uh, what does that look like to have disability sort of? And was that sort of? Yeah, right? yeah. Um, I think that you could look at ableism being entangled in all the other isms, right? And that's why it's it's one of the reasons, if for no other reason, you should be aware of disability justice, right? So this idea of taking f- physical characteristics and giving them a value judgment, whether it's you know average, bad, or good, and then creating a stigma against that. So you know if you're saying oh. Women can't be in power because they're weak, because they, um, you know, they're too other emotional. Crazy things. Yeah, <laughs> things that have no basis in fact, but also saying, like, what if that was true? Like, the inherent ableism that is saying that to be emotional is bad. It's to accept that as a weakness. Right, or to be not physically strong is something that should prohibit you in life, like, what are these value judgments and sort of like who made them, who are they um, benefiting and who are they marginalizing? Uh, And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons that being aware of ableism in all of these other isms, being aware of disability issues and all these other issues are actually really central in sort of creating a more equitable society. And if that wasn't a good enough reason, if you live long enough, you probably inherit a disability. And I know that's a an overused one, but you know what? I don't want to scare people into uh, <laughs> things because disability shouldn't be scary. But it's a good reason to become more empathetic. If you sort of take on this disability, you're going to be more aware of access and the lack of it. So... Wow, that was pretty awesome wrap up there. <laughs> okay, I I mean there's a there's a 
a, an element to disability rights that it is a tide that lifts all boats, right? That all mm -hmm. of us would, would benefit whatever state of disability we may or may not have in a moment. And um, even if it doesn't benefit you, it certainly doesn't hurt you to be inclusive, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But for sure. Yeah. But part of what I heard you say is like, it actually open your mind a little that there there are ways that it will benefit you too. I mean, oh, totally. Yeah. Everyone loves an elevator or a curb <laughs> cut when you have a grocery cart, right? So or a baby carriage. Yeah, or yeah. Whatever that is. Um, so cool to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Th so I feel like fun. we could talk forever, <laughs> but um, we'll have to pick it up another time. Great. Thank you, Madison. Thank you.